if you guys want to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17, are looking at this passage of Scripture, and we're thinking about these, these words, be of sin the double cure. Uh, this is a powerful thought. God has saved us from the wrath of not Pharaoh, but the world and of sin, and he's paid for our debt. That's where we talk about the lamb who was slain, the Passover lamb. That's why we have a door in the lobby from the message of the Passover where the blood was put on the door, uh, and we know that that was a shadow pointing to which Christ fulfilled, and he has saved us from the wrath of God. But the reality is, just because you've repented of your sin and you've put your trust in Jesus, that's only the beginning of an incredible adventure. It's wonderful, it's spectacular, but it's only the beginning and the battles have not ceased. Okay, you're not in heaven yet. I don't know if you've noticed that. And so it's really difficult. And so when we tell people, man, if you just follow Christ, you're going to be um, always healthy and rich and life will be perfect and wonderful and it'll be great. And you'll be, oh, you've got to do it. It'll be so fun. It'll be awesome. Not really. Not really. I mean, I, in Second Timothy, it says that all who desire to live godly are going to suffer. How's that for a leading cell point? You follow Jesus, you're going to suffer. You might be martyred. You might be killed. You might be this. You might be that. You're going to be a target for the enemy. You're going to be. I mean, the reality is following Christ is to say, and when we repent of our sins, we're, we're looking to Jesus. We're saying, you know what? You are better than anything this world has to offer. It's not, it's not that you're the key that unlocks the most prosperous, wonderful life on earth. You're the key that locks the prosperous, wonderful life in heaven. And you give me purpose and meaning and worth today on earth. And so Jesus is the double cure in that he has saved us from wrath. And he's making us pure by providing us his righteousness. You do not have to sin. You don't have to sin. Now, on this side of eternity, you're never going to be sinless. But you have been, the debt of sin has been removed from you, and God has punished that in Christ on the cross. But you still have a flesh, and your flesh loves sin and runs after sin and will continue, has that bent away from God. And so Jesus has placed his spirit in us to help us live a life that we could not live on our own power and so as we deal with the battles of life, we can understand that we need to lean on and look to and, and uh, know that Jesus indwells us through his spirit and gives us the power to live a life that we could not possibly live on our own power. And that's what this passage gets into in Exodus chapter 17. It deals with the reality that there's going to continue to be battles in the future. So look with me to Exodus chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness. Wilderness of sin by stages, according to the command of the Lord, commandment of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Now, let's just stop there for a second, because you know that if you were here last week, that they were thirsty and God and they grumbled and they were upset. They went three days and they ran out of water and they got upset and then God gave them water, but it was bitter water, and they were mad about that because it wasn't good enough water, and so he changed it to be sweet water, and so they got sweet water, and then he brought them to a place with palm trees and, and springs, and it was a spectacular place for them to rest and, and fed them. Uh, they got plenty of water, and then they were upset because they didn't get food, and so then they started getting mad about that, and then he sent manna from heaven, and he told them, look, from this point forward, 
uh, you don't ever have to worry about food. I will every day give you everything you need to supply your needs and give you all the food that you're going to need. And so uh, don't worry about that. And he gave them quail and so actually meat and then manna, uh, which means what is it? That's the name manna. That's what it means. And, and so he took care of all their needs. Everything's great, right? And so at this point, they're thirsty again, but it's not a problem because they know God's going to take care of it. And so they just said, God, we know that you're going to take care of it. And we're just trusting you, right? No, that's not what they said. And so there, here's what happens. Verse 2, therefore, the people quarreled to Moses with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsty, uh, thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? A wise, godly man told uh, Janet and I early in our marriage, gave us uh, this statement that we've, we've just kept. Um, actually, it was before we got married. Uh, and uh, it's been so good. And he just made the statement, look, God is not the God of what ifs. And we were dating and we were wrestling with all these questions and I guess engaged and, and uh, you know, okay, he's got calls together. He's with this, that. What about this? What about that? There's all these circumstances that were bombarding us. It was a really difficult season. And he just said, look, God's not the God of what ifs. And our tendency is we think that what ifs rule the day. And so we start thinking about the what ifs. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? And so they're out in the desert and they're thirsty and they start thinking about what if we don't get water? What if we die? What if what's going to happen? Our kids are about to start falling and they're going to be fainting and then our animals are going to die and then we're going to have food. We're going to lose our kids. We're going to fall. We're going to, everybody's going to, we're all going to die out here in the way. This is what's going to happen here today. Moses. And so the what ifs become the God, the focus they, they become the thing they look to, and so they start creating in their minds scenarios that have not happened that they assume are going to happen. And so the, the, the reality is if you worry about the future, what's going to happen is you're going to be consumed with fear. And, and so they started worrying about the, the God of the what if. And, and they started thinking about what's going to happen. Do you ever do that in your life? Do you ever start thinking about, well, if this is going to happen, that's going to happen, this is going to happen, that's going to happen. And it's one thing to plan ahead, that's fine. But to be consumed with fear and paralyzed because of all the possible what-ifs, those in the congregation this morning that are uh, over the age of 50 will tell you that most of the things that you worry about aren't going to ever happen. Would, that, would you give me an amen on that, over 50s? If you would be willing to admit that you're over 50. All right, well, I hear one. Do I hear a second? We, we understand that a lot of the stuff we worry about through life experience, you realize that, ain't, that never happens. It never happens. But nonetheless, they become consumed with fear. And in the midst of that, they do something that's really dangerous. They begin to test God. They begin to test God. I don't really think you're going to come through for us. I don't really think you have our best interest in mind. I don't really think you've thought through your plan really well. I don't think you really know how to get us from point A to point B. I don't really think you're taking us to the promised land. I don't really think you delivered us to give us a better life. I, thought, I think you delivered us from Egypt just to take us out here so we can all starve and die of thirst and, uh, and, and just be buried out here in the wilderness. They begin to test God. They begin to ask questions and grumble. Why did you bring us out here to kill us and our children? And so Moses did the wise thing. He, instead of fighting them or joining them, he just trusted God. And he turned to the Father in prayer and he said, What shall I do with this people? And what do I need to do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. 
They're wanting to kill me. Behold, I will stand before you. I'm sorry. And the Lord said to Moses, the Lord gives him an answer. He says to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. So Moses cries out to God. He trusts in God. And according to James 1, 5, we're told that if you lack wisdom, if you don't know what to do, just ask for it. Let him ask God who gives generously to all who uh, to, to all without reproach and will it will be given to you. God doesn't rebuke you for asking questions. God doesn't judge you for asking. He's glad for you to ask. If you don't know what to do, you don't know where to go, you don't know how to get through this, you have a choice to make. You can test God and begin to doubt him and to begin to question him, question his omnipotence, question his, um, his power, question his presence, question his provisions, question his judgment, question, or you can trust in the fact that he is way beyond your comprehension and he's got a purpose and he's got a way and somehow he's going to be glorified and he's going to use your suffering or your provision or your deliverance or whatever it is for his glory and his, his purposes. This, your circumstances are not outside of the realm of God's control and his provision and his insight. He's going to take care of you. And so am I testing God or am I trusting God? That's the big question for us to ask. And Moses did so. And in the sight of the elders of Israel, he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah. Massah means testing and Meribah means contending because quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because of they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? You understand what is happening here is they had a little something we all battle with, and it's called unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. They had an expectation that would take care of them. They would have sufficient water, sufficient food. There would be no suffering. There would be no trials. Everything's going to be great now because they've been delivered, and God set them free from Egypt, from the world, and now they've got this new life, and they've passed through the Red Sea, and everything's going to be awesome from this point. There's no army after them anymore, no oppression. The whip is not, you know, cracking at them. They're not being beaten and tormented, and everything's going to be great now, and it wasn't. God had delivered them from their external circumstances, and it <clears throat> now in this new day, it just started to reveal some the, the real problem, and it was internal, not external. Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but is what comes out. Your biggest problem is not your circumstances. It's not your environment. It's not the place you're at. It is within you. That's our biggest problem. And so unmet expectations don't reveal anything about God, but they reveal everything about us. Unmet expectations are what reveals whether we're testing God or whether we're trusting God. When we start to put expectations on God, when we start to Expect that he should do this, he should do that, he should do that. It reveals where our trust is. And God graciously, as a loving father, often will put us in circumstances that will reveal where we really are at. 
and give us an opportunity to repent and trust in Jesus or start to dig our own grave, so to speak, in the wilderness. In fact, that's really what happened to many of these. In um, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, it says this, verse 10, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, the cloud that led them in the, by day in the wilderness, and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, the manna from heaven. And all drank the same spiritual drink, which is about to happen as he hits the rock and provides water for them. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Verse 5. Nevertheless, most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. That's going to happen later in the book. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents later in the book. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is, this is telling us about what's going to happen as this book goes on. Jesus graciously, God graciously tests them, reveals them, but slowly he's going to begin to discipline them severely because of their unbelief, because of their lack of faith, because they continue to test him again and again and again. And he begins to, as a loving father would, discipline his children. And so it's going to become very harsh as things progress. And they find that trusting or testing God is not the path to a better life. Now in this, I want to take a moment. I want to, I want to look at these three pictures that we've covered already uh, in this book uh, to this point. There's three images here. First one we talked about last week is manna. And that's the bread of life. The bread of life. So that, that helps us think about Jesus as the bread of life, ultimately. God provided them for daily everything they needed and took care of their needs. And so through Christ, and he tells us in, uh, in, in John that he is the bread of life. He is the manna, ultimately. Manna is a shadow of Christ, and Christ is the fulfillment of that real-time thing that happened in Exodus that ultimately was teaching them, and it was going to be something that Jesus pointed back to one day and said, look, I am the provision, I'm what you need to sustain you, and if you eat of me, you're going to live forever. So I've got what you need. I am the bread of life. The second picture is the striking of the rock. As I just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we understand that um, this is a twofold picture. One, God provided for them nourishment and provided water for them in the wilderness, as we're going to um, see here in a minute. But secondly, uh, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it tells us, for they drank of all the drink of the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. And so it points to Jesus. It is through God striking his son upon the cross that living water is available to you. If Jesus was not crushed, like we're told in Isaiah 54, I believe it is, that it pleased God to crush him. Why would God be pleasured to crush his son? Quick little theology lesson for you. What's going on there is that 
God had been forgiving people for generations because they would sacrifice a lamb, sacrifice this, sacrifice that, whatever. These things were pictures of forgiveness, pictures of the sacrifice for them, but the blood of bulls and goats would never forgive their sins. It was just a picture, and it withheld the wrath of God upon their sins. But all the while, people were being forgiven, and they were, they were able to go to heavens in hopes of uh, the fact, or looking forward to the fact that God would one day deal with their sin. And so God's righteousness had been called into question. God's justice had been called into question. Is God just if he does not forgive, if he does not pay for and punish sin? He said, well, God's God. He can do whatever he wants. Oh, is that, I mean, you really think that? I mean, yes, God's God. He can do what he wants. But is, but is God just or is he unjust? Do we believe in a just or an unjust God? In fact, that's the problem with Islam is they have an unjust God who he just arbitrarily chooses to forgive sin because people follow some pillars and blow up a building and travel to Mecca and pray towards the east and they do this and they do that and they check the boxes. And if they do all of those things, then God will hopefully be gracious to them and choose to forgive their sins based upon their actions that are done with unrighteous lives. And yet the God of the Bible, is he the same as that? Is he really? Is Allah and, and Yahweh, are they really the same God? No, they're not. Because God did not just arbitrarily forgive sin. God punished sin, and he punished it harshly, and he punished it severely. He punished it in the person of Jesus Christ, God with flesh, the second person of the Trinity. God came to earth as the rescuer, and it pleased the Father to crush his son because in that it vindicated the righteousness of God. No longer can anybody say, God, you are unjust because you forgive evil, wicked sinners, and you let them off the hook. You let them go to heaven. And nobody paid the debt. No, I paid the debt. I paid the debt my son. I poured my wrath out upon my son on the cross. If we're to, if we're to liken that to our present culture, it would be as if one of your loved ones was brutally killed by some evil man. And evidence was brought. We had DNA. We had video. We had surveillance. We had witnesses. We brought all of the evidence it was all there, and you're there at the trial grieving the loss of your loved one and wanting justice. And the judge looks at all the evidence and goes, you know what, I just feel like, I, I just feel like a, being a nice guy today. And so, yeah, clearly this guy's guilty, but I'm just going to let him off because he seems to be apologetic, and he's done a couple nice things for the community after that, and so he's all right. I'm going to go ahead and let him off the hook. Would you say that judge is just or is that judge unjust? What would you say? The God of Islam. The God of the Bible is just because he takes his robe off. And he comes down, he says, okay, I'm going to die in his place. And he is guilty, but I'm, I've never broken the laws. And I'm going to die in his place and I will pay his punishment. And that's what Jesus did for you. He took his robe off, he left heaven. And though we were, uh, though he was rich, he became poor that we through his poverty coming to earth might become rich, died in our place so that we can have relation. God crushed him. And so he tells Moses to take the staff that he used to part the Red Sea, dropped it, it became a serpent um, to show God's power. Uh, he'd done some miraculous things. He takes this staff 
and he, he strikes the rock and water flows. And it was a picture from that point forward of how Christ was, was uh, smitten, was struck, and then water has flowed from him to us. John chapter 7, Jesus picks up this image of being aware of him being the fulfillment of it. Uh, John chapter 4, we have the woman at the well, um, the, the Samaritan woman. And, and Jesus says to, to her, can I have some water? And she says, how is it that you, a Jewish man, would, would ask for water for me, um, a Samaritan woman? I'm a woman. I'm unclean because I'm a Samaritan. Why are you even talking to me? And he says, the woman, if you knew who I was, you would ask of water for me. And if you drink of the water that I have, you will never thirst again. And it will become in you a well springing up into eternal life. And then he picks that image up three chapters later as, as Jesus' ministry can, progresses. John reflects John chapter 7, verse 37 says this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so three images. One, man, a God is, Jesus is the bread of life. He is the bread of heaven that has come down from heaven to us, giving us life. Number two, Jesus was crushed for us. And so striking the rock pictures Jesus crucified. But then the third part of this is the water from the rock, which is a picture, according to John chapter 7, of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus has sent. Jesus was crucified, and then he ascends to the right hand of the Father to be our, our intercessor. We'll come back to there in a minute. And he prays on our behalf, but he sent the Comforter to come to us, his Spirit now indwelling us to give us this living water so that it can flow out to other people. This is why we do this. This is how the Holy Spirit flows out from us. This is a big box. This is awesome. Hope I, I, the kid next to the kid that gets with us is going to be like, man. Hopefully they'll go to a big family like ours. They need help with it. It's like a, we put a whole trunk of stuff. This is awesome. But the Holy Spirit poured out in us so that we could pour out into other people. We're going to take food boxes or bags this week, uh, to a community as an opportunity that the Holy Spirit can flow. And you say, well, I don't know what to say. You know, I don't know what to say either. I don't know what I'm going to be confronted with. I don't know what conversation is going to happen today. But I know this, I have the Holy Spirit in me. And I know that as soon as I, the hardest part of the whole mission thing we're doing today is not getting a ticket on the road going in because they speed check that a lot of times. And I almost got one one time. And the second part of that is when you knock on the door. It's a little scary if you've never done this before. But once the door is open, you say, hey, we're here with Cross Life Church. We came to deliver your food boxes. And then the Holy Spirit takes over. And I'm telling you, from the rest of the conversation, it's really not bad. And you'll end up saying things and talking about things and whatever. And you quoting scripture and talking about God taught you today in Exodus and whatever. And all these things. And you'll be like, how did I even, I didn't even, I thought I, thought I slept through the sermon. And I hear these, I'm quoting stuff and whatever. And you're thinking, where did this stuff come from? I don't know if you've ever been, have, how many of you have ever had a conversation, spiritual conversation, and you said things, shared things, and you were like, wow, I think God just took that over and hijacked my mouth. Yeah, you've been there. What is that? That's the Holy Spirit. That's the water from the rock coming and filling you and taking over. In fact, by the way, what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Why did he come, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, says, you shall receive the Spirit, and he, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. 
you did not receive the Spirit for your own self-glorifications or glorification. The Holy Spirit's purpose is to glorify Jesus, and the Holy Spirit has come to indwell you for missions primarily. Secondarily, he puts the law in our hearts. He helps us, convicts us of sin. He illuminates the Scripture to it. He does all these other things. But according to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, primarily the Holy Spirit came to be a missionary, to give us a missionary empowerment as we take the gospel across the street and around the world. And so three images, manna, striking the rock, bread from heaven, Jesus crucified, Holy Spirit sent. Which leads us to the next part of this uh, chapter, uh, which is verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand up on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. What's going on here? Well, Israel had two problems here. Number one, they thirsted. And number two, they were being watched. <laughs> There's two things going on in this. The first one is they thirsted. They had a need that, quite frankly, we will continue to have a need that only Christ can fulfill. And so we all thirst and we have a need that Jesus alone can fill. So we need to be going to the well, going to Christ. And it's not that uh, we, we drink of him and we will never thirst again. That's true, according to John chapter 4. But when we drink of Christ, we realize that he alone can meet our need. And so there's nothing else the world's going to give you that's ever going to satisfy you. And so we keep going back to Christ to continue to be filled and nourished and uh, rejuvenated. And so we... Don't ever think that you have grown enough that you can do this on your own. One of the biggest lies that we've believed in churches is that the gospel is the way in, but it's not the way to grow. And so Jesus did not, you, you, are, you mature as a believer the same way you get saved as a believer, and that is by grace through faith. The Holy Spirit and God, the Word of God working in and through your life, the power of Jesus and His righteousness and His Spirit in you. That's how we grow. That's where fruit comes from, okay? Spiritual fruit is from, from abiding in Christ, from being filled with the Spirit, from um, believing and trusting in the gospel, all three of those images, same concept. That's how we grow. And so we are in desperate need. Don't ever get arrogant and think, oh, I'm doing really good spiritually. No, 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 no. You just maybe, you think you are, but God's going to bring some circumstance into your life and he's going to test you and you're going to see that you have some other areas that Jesus lovingly, as a loving father, wants to grow you in. And if you think that you've arrived, that also tells me you're not reading your Bible. Because if you read the Bible, you're going to be confronted with God's holiness and your need for his intervention and help in your life. And you're going to have new things to repent of and trust in Jesus and see Jesus uh, become bigger in your life as you become smaller. And so understand, we're thirsty. That was one of the problems. The second problem is they were being watched. We, we are always under attack. You have, a, you have another problem, and that's the enemy doesn't like you. And when you follow Christ, you've switched teams. And he's going to continue to be in opposition to you. Not only is the enemy going to be in opposition to you, but the world system will be in opposition to you, and your flesh will be in opposition to you. So you have three different enemies attacking you. Some people call it the unholy trinity. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they're all coming at you. And so how do we deal with the flesh 
as we walk in the Christian life. And that's where this next chunk of scripture takes us. Amalek came, fought with them, with Israel at Rephidim. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, a couple um, books later in Exodus, I mean in uh, the Pentateuch, we're given a little of the backstory here. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, and you shall not forget. Who is Amalek? Who is this guy? Well, Amalek was a son of Esau. I don't have time to get into the whole history there, but you know the passage, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated, uh, in Romans, referring to Jacob and Esau, two brothers. Uh, Esau was born first. Jacob came out holding the ankle of his brother, and they fought, and they, uh, they continued to be at war with each other. Uh, and, and one day, um, Jacob deceived his brother and took away his birthright. Now, to, our tendency is to go, well, Jacob's really a twisted, evil person, and he was. But... Esau was a very fleshly man, and Esau in the Old Testament is a picture of the flesh because he gave up the birthright for a bowl of soup. Not a prime rib steak, okay? Not some ribs, not something good, not some. I mean, he gave it up for a bowl of soup. I like soup, but I'm not giving up my future fortunes for a bowl of soup, but that's the flesh. And, and that's how goofy all of us are. How much do we sacrifice because of the hunger and the allurement of something fleshly that we know long term will never satisfy and yet we will sell the world and lose our soul for something so stupid as a bowl of soup and that's Esau and so Esau is a picture of the flesh and he has a son named Amalek and they continue to have descendants and so Amalek is the descendants the the Amalekites are the descendants of Esau and eventually they would die now in fact they're going to continue to be a problem in Israel's history eventually Saul is going to be battling them and he's going to spare them and it's going to be a Malachite that actually kills King Saul, the first king of Israel, before David becomes king. And then eventually, later on, they will be blotted out. But nonetheless, they're still going for a while, and they're still battling against Israel because they don't do a good job heeding God's advice to blot them out, and they continue to let a little bit of the flesh exist. We're told in Romans not to make a provision for the flesh. The reality is if you leave some space in your life, you leave a little area that you think, well, that's really a compromise. It's not really that big. of I mean, it's not that bad, this thing, that belief, this action, this little hobby, this whatever it is that you just seem to tolerate because it's really not that bad of a thing. It's going to grow like a cancer, and it will eventually take you over. So you could be killing the flesh, or it's going to kill you, but there's no neutrality in the war against the flesh. And so how do we deal with the flesh? Well, let's look at this passage and see what we can learn. Tomorrow I will stand on the hill, verse 9 with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. And while Moses and Aaron and Hur went up on top of the hill, and whenever Moses held up his hands in prayer over the battle, holding the staff of God, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hands, because he got tired of praying and, 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 and interceding on their behalf, Amalek began to prevail. And so the Israelites were losing the battle. And so Verse 12, Moses' hands grew weary so that they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. So he gave him a seat. And then Aaron and Hur, they stood on the right and left of him and they 
held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Put this down on paper because this is going to happen, which is true of all the promises of God. Verse 15, Moses built an altar and called the name of it. The Lord is my banner saying, I a hand upon the throne of the Lord and the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation, generation to generation. So Moses built an altar, called it the name of it being the Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nisi, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. Now, what do we have to learn here about battling the flesh? Well, three quick things and we're done. Three quick things. We have an intercessor is the first thing. Here's the thing. Moses is a picture of, of one who's a far greater intercessor. Here's the thing. Moses was great. I mean, he was a good leader. I mean, he was great. And he fought for him and he held up and that was a huff and he was probably fighting. Can you imagine having your arms up above your head, holding the staff and just good night. And as it started to go, they started to lose, which would have, I imagine he would have had a rush of adrenaline and he would have pushed it back up and he would have held it a little longer and then they start losing again. And then he fights it up there and eventually he just could not, he was limited in his power. And yet Jesus is ultimately the high priest of which he didn't have to sacrifice for us on behalf of his sin before he could sacrifice for us. He is the sacrifice. He is the high priest. He's the greater high priest. He's from an eternal line. And so Jesus is, is far greater, and we know that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he intercedes on our behalf. So Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he uh, who was raised and who is the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. He is praying before the Father. John, First uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, also talks about that we have an advocate before the Father, the righteous Christ Jesus. He's praying on our behalf. And he is pleading uh, on our behalf and in, in bringing him to the attention of God. As the enemy makes accusations, Jesus is saying, I've paid for that. I've, I paid for Yeah, they messed up, but I've paid for that. I paid for that. Yeah, and I'm giving him my power. Yeah, they're not relying upon my power. But nonetheless, you can't judge them based upon what has already been judged in me. I paid for that. And so he's interceding on our behalf. Do you realize that right now Jesus is praying for you? Right now. As we disperse shortly, Jesus is interceding for you. When temptation comes, Jesus is interceding for you. When you mess up and you sin in the midst of your sin. In the midst of evil, Jesus is interceding for you. Even as he said to Peter, Satan's going to sift you, Peter. I I don't really like that verse. Hey, Peter, just want you to know, Satan's going to sift you. Love for Jesus to say, Satan wanted to sift you, but I told him, no. No, my boy, you're not sifting Peter. You know what Jesus says next? Take courage, Peter. Prayed for you. Prayed for you. I want you to know, Satan's going to sift you. He's going to sift you. Jesus is praying for you. Take courage. We have an intercessor who is before the Father, who is holding up the staff of God that is praying on behalf 
of our sins. And so we have an intercessor in the battle against the flesh. Not only that, but he sent Joshua down to fight the battle. And Jesus, because he's interceding, has sent the comforter, the helper, to help us fight the battle. And so he sent his spirit to help us. So you have Jesus interceding on your behalf. And secondly, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, leading us and guiding us through the battle, giving us the strategies we need to overcome, giving us, bringing us back to the word of God to help us to know what to do. This is the place where you get the battle plans is the word of God. And the Holy Spirit's the one who illuminates and opens our eyes so we can understand and see it. So we understand that we have an intercessor, we have a comforter and a guide, and lastly, we have a banner. Could you imagine an army? And this is the way things were fought back in the day. If you've watched any medieval stuff or older stuff or you know reenactments of wars and things, what happens is the armies come in and leading the different regiments. In fact, this is true even in the Civil War. They would have regiments uh, and Revolutionary War, and each regiment would have a flag, and the flag would represent that group of people. And so it was absolutely common for a nation to have a flag and for different groups and tribes to have flags. And, and so the problem is Israel didn't have any flags. They just had this old guy standing up on a hill with a staff in his hand. I mean, how funny is that? So the Amalekites are fighting, and they're like, what's up with the old man up on the hill with the staff? That's their leader. Oh, yeah, we can take these guys. And so they just, um, the Amalekites, I'm sure they thought, man, we could, we could lay it to them. They just got, the, they don't even have a flag. This is hilarious. Oh, and then they lost the battle. You know, on earth, we, we can't see with physical eyes what's really going on. But I, but I want you to know that in your darkest day, in the hardest battle, when you feel like all hope is lost, And with your eyes, you cannot see the banner representing your victory. I want you to know that in the spiritual realm, which, by the way, is more real than the physical, because it's going to last forever, there is a banner that is being raised, that has been raised through Christ, and that is that the Lord is your banner. The Lord is your salvation. It is done. The final score is on the banner, and God's team wins. And so I know that life is tough. I know that we live in crazy, crazy times, and what we read about on the news that happened in obscure places around the world is now happening all over Western civilization, and suffering, and challenges, and things are happening, and it's getting tough, and you know, it might get worse, and our country probably will. Regardless of that, stop looking with your eyes and fighting the wrong battles. And understand that we have an intercessor, we have a comforter, and a guide that will lead us through this and help us to proclaim and lead as many people to Christ as possible before He comes. And at the end of the day, God has raised up a banner of salvation over us because He is the Lord, our banner. He is our salvation, our refuge, our strength. He's our rock. He is our manna from heaven. He is the water that fills us. He has given us everything we need. As we end the service, there's plenty of things for us to repent and trust in Jesus. Plenty of things for us to be reminded of. Plenty of things for us to be encouraged about. But if you are like the children of Israel, because there's some of us in here that, that you fall in this category. You have been through, been delivered from... Egypt and you pass through the waters and you jump through the hoops and you've done a baptism and you've done church membership and you've done 
um, church involvement, church attendance, Sunday school, small groups, life groups, mission stuff. You've done, you've checked all the boxes, and yet God is not pleased with you because the one thing you didn't do is repent and surrender. Stop playing games. Stop jumping through hoops and rely upon Christ who's your salvation. Rely upon his righteousness. Rely upon the hope that only he can bring. As we've talked about the wonderful pictures of how awesome Jesus is, I hope that you realize and you're, you're seeing as I'm seeing that there is no other options that the world can give. There's nothing else that will ever satisfy. Christ alone should be our hope. He alone is our rock of ages. Cleft for me. To hide us from the wrath of God. To be of sin the double cure. To save us from the wrath and yet to make us so if you don't know Christ, come talk to me in the, in the back of the room in these moments or after the service. Use these last moments to allow God to do a holy work in our hearts and in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would drive home these truths. God, that we would sit, stand, sing, listen, pray, whatever we do in these moments, with amazement and astonishment in awe at how awesome and mighty and wonderful and powerful you are. That you alone can save me. You alone can save us. That you, you rescue, you redeem. And so, Father, help us just to trust in the sufficiency of Jesus, the filling of your Spirit, and you, our banner, our salvation. Amen.